Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony Giacchettino. And today, I wanted to talk about something that I have spoken about before, but I feel really deserves a revisit. Um, and and I, I don't know... I was debating things before this podcast with a couple of different people about how to best... Uh, bring this up, and the the consensus was basically just you have to go for it. You have to just throw it out there. You cannot bandy about things. So um, I I want to do this today. I'm going to talk about um, a couple of issues w- which we would call um, in Orwell's language, George Orwell, uh, double think. And also gaslighting, which even though it's not something that Orwell really talked about directly as far as, you know, he said that, uh, still is a major part of what Orwell's texts uh, deem to be. And it's funny because uh, (laughs) I actually was um, with a little one uh, whom I know went over Charlotte's Web and was very upset at uh, the end of this is spoiler alert if you haven't read Charlotte's web um do yourself a favor stop listening to my podcast right now stop it pause it don't stop listening to me of course pause it and go read Charlotte's web okay i'm i'm giving you this right now if you're one of the 99.9% of people that has listened to Charlotte's web or has read Charlotte's web before watch the movie um, you know that at the end, uh, you know, Charlotte dies. And, you know, it's, it's a question of, well, you know, why, why does Charlotte die? Why, why do people have to die? Why do animals have to die? And I said, you know, I was, well, you know, this is, this is reality. You know, in reality, everyone dies eventually, okay? Everything dies eventually. It, it's more a, a, a matter of what we do with the time that we have here. And then I was thinking about the fact that with my students, and if you're listening to me and you're one of my students that's going to be in 7th or 8th grade next year, <laughs> well, this is, this is a, a fair warning. Um, I'm going to put out that you have to read Animal Farm by George Orwell. Um, it, it's, it's more of my 7th graders going into 8th grade. So my rising 8th graders. And I, I want the rising 8th graders to read it because... Animal Farm is essentially, and again, if you haven't read Animal Farm, please pause the podcast. I won't think any less of you. I really won't. Pause the podcast and go and read Animal Farm. And then after you read Animal Farm, I want you to do me another solid. I want you to go and look up the Russian Revolution in 1917-18. Okay? And I want you to read all about that. Because when you actually do read all about that, you're going to be like, holy crap, pardon my language here, the, 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 uh, the, you know, the Russian Revolution is essentially explained out in Animal Farm. And it is, okay? Uh, Orwell, even though Orwell was a socialist, Orwell did not tolerate people um, being stupid, and he did not tolerate people being uh, you know, just just being hypocrites. 
And I remember there's a book I read. uh, Oh, goodness. Probably now it's been 15 years plus. Well, the name of the book is A People's Tragedy, The Russian Revolution, 1891 to 1924, by Orlando Figs. Now, Orlando Figs, um, I believe he was, the last I looked up here, I think he was at the University of Miami, but Orlando Figs is a, is, um, a scholar par excellence about the Russian Revolution. And his book, A People's Tragedy, you, you will never look at... And I know, okay, bear with me here. I'm talking to a minority of people. I shouldn't be. I should be talking to a majority of people. But whatever. For those of you who are still to be like, oh, well, we're talking about the Russian Revolution. Hold on, let me, let me pause what's going on in the TV. Um, a People's Tragedy is an outstanding book, and it really just completely pulls uh, the covers off of everything that went on. Um, it is a book that really opened my eyes. Uh, you know, before that, I, I honestly did. And, and, you know, one of the things that I always say is that if you still, you know, there's the old Churchill quote that if you're young and you're not a liberal, you don't have a heart. And if you're old and you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain. Um, I disagree with that completely. Um, but I will say this. I will say the following, that... Um, you know, a lot of people don't change their opinions as they get older. They stick to things. They're just like, nope, this is what I believe, and I'm going to believe it until. Um, I like to be- I, I I like to feel that as I've gotten older, I have changed my opinion on things um, quite often. I think that that's a sign of maturity. Um, <laughs> yeah, many people that I know might say, well. <laughs> Maturity, when is it going to catch up with him? But the reality is that this is a book that really changed the way that I looked at the communist regime in uh, Russia in the, the, the latter part of the eight, in 19-teens and in the 1920s. Um, it did change the way I looked at Lenin. Uh, it changed the way I looked at the development of uh, you know, communism and socialism in Russia. But be that as it may, where I'm going with all of this is that uh, the book Animal Farm is ridiculously uh, appropriate reading. Um, I remember when I read it, I was in seventh grade, and I think I talked about this in one of my previous podcasts. And if you listen to that, um, then you know you're you're getting it again. Um, and if you haven't listened to it, well, you're getting it now. Uh, when I was in seventh grade at uh, in South River one of the great school districts in the state of New Jersey. Uh, I remember I had a teacher, Miss Bitto, and, um, you know, I don't, I don't know where she is right now. I don't know what she's doing right now. But wherever she is, whatever she's doing, um, if, if you know her, if you manage to talk to her, I'm, I'm still citing her. We read Animal Farm, um, and uh, it was, I remember thinking when I first heard it, I was like, oh, my God. This stupid book about freaking animals. Because we'd also read the Lorax, and I was like, oh my god, a stupid book about things. And I'll tell you what, it was really just mind-opening because I was so wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. You couldn't, I couldn't have been more wrong. I thought this was going to be an absolutely stupid year. As it turns out, it was one of the most 
important years of my life. Because aside from the Lorax, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed, we actually had a, a, a mock trial about the Lorax. And uh, it was Fred Roselli Jr. was uh, lead counsel for us. Fred, if you're out there, uh, you did a good job. You know, you did. Um, I also did a very good job in, uh, as an assistant counsel for the, uh, um, for the prosecution there. But anyway, Animal Farm, Animal Farm was important because Animal Farm brought to the front the fact that, um, you know, we, the revolution can be co-opted and that it's very difficult. It's very difficult indeed to actually, you know, to, to point things out, which, you know, it's like, this is what we wanted and this is how it's going to go. And I think Animal Farm is one of the most important books I've ever read. Now, those of you who know me and have listened to my podcast know that 1984, the the sequel, in a in a sense, not literally, but yes, it was a sequel to Animal Farm. 1984 is my favorite book of all time. Uh, 1984 to me is the absolute sledgehammer. Um, there are very few books that have been written which are as fine as that. Um, now, those of you who are going to uh, quote the book We, uh, those of you who are going to talk about Brave New World, no, I get it. I do. Um, and, and it is really the Brave New World versus 1984. That's the kind of, you know, that, that's, I don't know how to put it. Um, there's really, I'm trying to think about how to explain that to people who haven't read both books. I mean, it, it's kind of like the the greatest sports team of all time. I mean, you know, you're 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 almost debating like a like a Real Madrid versus Barcelona. You're, I, but I don't even know that that does it. It's like, well, w- which one is better? Which one is the best? But anyway, what I wanted to talk about today, now I'm bringing this around here, is the issue of doublethink, and the reason I'm bringing this about and gaslighting is because. I've noticed that this is absolutely going bonkers right now, favorite word of mine, um, with the Republican Party in the United States. And again, my podcasts are not political, okay? I'm not doing it to make fun of the political party. I'm not doing it to support one over the other, okay? My belief has always been, and this is as as an educator, as a teacher, my belief has always been we, you know, I present the facts, okay? Uh, you know, I will never, and I have never, in the school sense, in the scholastic sense, I have never preached an agenda, okay? I simply prevent fa- present facts, <clears throat> and then people decide, okay? It reminds me kind of of the old Fox News thing, you know, we, uh, we present, you decide type deal. It would be nice if that were the case, but that's what I do. I, I don't I don't preach something. I simply present facts, and then people get to make their choices. And that's really, to me, you see, that's what history is. History is not an agenda. History is a series of facts. This is what happened here. This is what happened there, okay? Um, now, if you want to read into it, if you want to, you know, go further... And say, well, you know, then because of A, then B, uh, that's on you. 
And in many cases, that's probably, uh, you know, uh, what people decide, you know, is, is actually pretty factual. But I don't do that. But what I want to say right now is that we have a lot of issues going on. And there's an idea of doublethink being, being put out there. And doublethink, according to Orwell, 1984, doublethink is the ability to hold two completely contradictory thoughts at the same time. Okay? So, uh, you know, I've always said one of my favorites... And again, I'm, I'm bringing this up. I'm not doing it because I, you know, well, I do support one side, but the bottom line is I'm not doing it because I support it. I'm doing it because it's, it, it's factual. Um, in the, the uh, eight years that President Barack Obama was, you know, president, you had the following argument from extreme right-wing sources. At, they said he's the weakest... He's the weakest, worst president, letting everyone, uh, foreign powers, roll over him. You know, he's giving in to everyone. Uh, It's terrible for this country. At the same time, the argument went that he was a wannabe dictator who was completely stomping on the Constitution and completely overstepping his bounds as president of the United States as is uh, delineated in the Constitution. Now, obviously, both of those cannot be correct in normal situations, but in doublethink, they can be correct, okay? Because doublethink requires you to be able to be like, you know, no, this is absolutely true. So, for example, you can say that a book being you know, published, is both full of absolute malarkey. It's complete uh, rubbish. Nothing in it is true at all. At the same time, that book should not be published because it has classified information in it. Now, the normal person would be like, well, wait a minute. It's either got classified information or it's complete you know, BS. But no, that's not... With doublethink, you can believe both. Okay? You can believe both at the same time. Now, the other thing that I want to talk about is gaslighting. Gaslighting is... it's It's an old phrase. It comes from the idea that you basically convince people that through through small steps that they really didn't hear or don't understand what happened before. So, for example, um, you know, the idea, yeah, Europe, uh, Oceania is at war with East Asia. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia. Well, likewise, right now, you've got um, the current president saying that you know, he never he never was against wearing masks. And you know, never was against wearing masks. I mean, despite the fact that you've got all of this evidence, uh, including tweets that, you know, suggest that he was against wearing masks. But that's that's gaslighting. It's like, no, 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 what are you talking about? He was always okay with that. You know, he he um you know, wanted the uh, coronavirus 
he was in favor of, you know, doing stuff before anyone else was. This is gaslighting, okay? Now, gaslighting is used, I'm not just pulling out the current administration. Gaslighting is something that's used by many administrations, okay? And it's used because they want you to be like, well, what, what, what happened? And you start questioning yourself. You start questioning, what, did, did this really happen? Did it not? You know, you, you start questioning it because people are like, no, that, that's not what happened at all. And I think that that's something very important. It goes right up there with doublethink. Because along with the doublethink, gaslighting is the way to, you know, creating a situation where people start doubting themselves. And in order to create a situation where you have uh, absolute authority over people, you have to have people who are willing to doubt themselves, okay? You know, don't believe what you're seeing. Don't believe what you're hearing. Believe what we're telling you. And again, this has been used both by the left and the right. I'm not just calling out the right wing on this. I'm not calling out the left wing. What I'm saying is that both sides throughout history have used this, okay? It was used tremendously under Stalinist rule in in the Soviet Union. Um, It's being used today uh, by the right wing in the United States and other places. It doesn't make it right. And I'm not saying you should be anti this. What you should be, and what I would hope those of you, my beloved listeners, would be, is the following. You should learn to hate doublethink and to hate gaslighting. It doesn't matter who's putting it forward. Okay, it doesn't matter. This is not saying you should be anti-right-wing, anti-left-wing, pro-this, pro-that, anti-this, anti-that. You should be against, completely against, the use of, of, of lying in order to convince people and, and, and of being deceptive in order to convince people that, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 5. That's where I want you to get to, okay? So when you have people that, you know, you're like, no, 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 I know you said this. No, I I never said that. No, you did. Keep calling them out on it. Keep saying, no, you did. No, no, you did. You said this, okay? I'm not going to accept because the people that claim, no, no, I didn't, they'll keep on claiming it. They'll claim it for a 100 years or more. You need to claim it for 101 years or more. You need to keep saying, nope, this is not what you said, you know? You said danger. I said grave danger? You said, is there another kind? A little little movie movie stuff for you there. If you know the movie that that's from, send me a, a, a message. I'd appreciate it. But anyway, I wanted to talk about that because I think it's extremely critical right now What we're talking about is we're talking about the soul of a nation. We're talking about the way that different countries come together and and either accept or, um, you know, deny realities. And when you accept things that, you know, it's like, well, you know, the party said that, you know, we've always been at war with East Asia. Well, you know, then you're susceptible to anything else that goes on. 
You know, you could be susceptible to, well, this party's always been this way. This party's always been that way. Even when it's not the case, okay? And you need to be aware of that. I really just, it's something because recently there's been a lot of that in the news. And I do want to make sure that my listeners are aware of what goes on. I mean, I could go on and on and and I think I probably will over the next couple of weeks. I will have different um, lessons about you know, parts of 1984 and what happened. I know I've done a podcast on this before, but, you know, it's almost like when I talk about, you know, I've done podcasts on uh, uh, the Constitution, and then it's like, well, you could do a podcast on the Constitution. You could also do a 45 minute, you could do an hour podcast on the First Amendment and still be, you know, where are we here with this? Oh, we're barely into it. But that's, I really, I wanted you, my fellow listeners, my, my very, very appreciated listeners, uh, to understand that, you know, there's a lot out there right now, and you're going to hear a lot of stuff, and it's only the middle of July. Uh, we've still got another few months in the United States before we've got an election. Those of you who are outside of the United States, I want to say the following. First of all, I am sorry that we've handled the coronavirus so terribly. Um, I really wish that the passport that I have could get me places other than, you know, about 20 places in this world where we're still being accepted. Um, I would love to. I, I really want to go see Chelsea play in, uh, in London. Um, unfortunately, I don't know that in come the fall that I'm going to have two weeks of uh, quarantine to be able to go into before... I get to do that. Um, I would love to go to France. Uh, you know, the, those. I'd love to go to Vienna. Uh, Italy, again, would be a dream. You know, uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do any of that stuff. Uh, it doesn't seem to be. You know, hopefully we can change things, and, uh, and we will be able to. Uh, but those of you who are listening to me from afar, uh, do let, let me know. I would really be interested on how uh, the United States is being portrayed in your media. I would. Um, I really want to know. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I will say this. Um, you know, we, we are at a very difficult time right now in the United States. And so I would beg of you, my uh, loyal listeners from other countries, we're going to have to do certain things in this country where it's going to be difficult for a little while. Um, and then hopefully we will be able to pull ourselves out of it. But, um, in the meantime, you know, please don't just look at us as this kind of, you know, what have you done for us lately? Think about the positive things we've done. I I always say this and I, and I, I have said it before and I will say it again. Uh, The United States has done some really lousy things. I think that anyone, if you're going to look at yourself as a person and identify everything you've done, you could definitely be like, oh man, I've done some really lousy things in the past. I think a lot of us have as part of growing up. But we've also done some really good things and we've done some positive things, okay? And that's kind of what I really want um, I really want people to remember the United States as a country that's done some good things, some really good things. Um, right now, 
we're we're in, we're in a bit of a state, but you know what? That that happens with a lot of countries. It's happened with empires in the past. I think we will get through this. I hope we will get through this. I mean, if we don't get through it, then we don't get through it, and, and then it's all over, and then you don't have to worry about it. But I do think I think that you know just completely writing us off. Yeah, you know, I I don't want to see that. I don't want people to do that. Um, I ask humbly to just be like, all right, listen, we're we're in a bit of a rough spot right now. Um, you know, and again, this is not political. This is just saying the reality of the way the country is. So I hope that uh, any of you listening to me, I hope you've gotten something out of this uh, this podcast. And, uh, you know, we're halfway done with July. My goodness. We got two podcasts left until it's August and then we're going to have to start talking about what's going to happen with schools in the fall. And by goodness, that's going to be a podcast in and of itself. Oh, jumping Jehovah, this is going to be crazy. I, I can't wait to see, because partly because I have no idea myself what's going to happen. All right, I, re- I have no idea. We'll see, what, we'll see what happens when it happens. Anyway, in the meantime, uh, those of you who uh, want to say something to me, please do contact me. Uh, email, drop a line, Twitter, Instagram, at Antonio Optimus, whatever you want. Let me know. Um, let me know what you thought of this podcast. Let me know what you think about all my podcasts. Um, and I will be with you next week. I hope that everyone is doing well. I hope that you're being safe. Okay. I hope that you're being safe and smart. And I will talk to you all next week. Have a wonderful time uh, between then. Bye-bye. Hello, hello, hello. Good day and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony J. Eschettino. And today I wanted to talk about something I've been asked about many times. Um, you know, my World War I, uh, the, the three, three-part podcast actually, you know, got me a couple of questions from people. They wanted to know about it. They wanted to ask more. And, and of, of course, I'm very happy. I mean, <laughs> this may come as a shock to some of you. And by that, I mean that no one who knows me, this will come as a shock to. But that I, I really do enjoy talking about history and, and explaining certain things. And, you know, World War One is just such a fascinating uh, event from an historical perspective. Obviously, it's a horrific event from a human perspective. Tens of millions of people died. You know, an entire generation lost. But from an historical perspective and trying to look at things like, well, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Uh, World War I is very interesting because there really aren't any, um, there aren't any clear-cut villains. Yes, I give it to you. You can maybe blame the Kaiser. Um, you know, you can blame, you know, the, the combination of systems of alliances. But what I wanted to talk about today, what I wanted to start talking about today, and this is, of course, something that's going to take many uh, podcasts to do, is about the Second World War. Now, the Second World War, uh, in the United States, if you are in America, you'll know this, uh, World War One is kind of like, oh, and then there was this little disagreement in Europe, and then uh, they killed one another for four years, then we had to come in and save them. Yeah, and then, and then that was that. World War Two, though, 
my God. I mean, World War II became, how many films can we do about this? How many times can John Wayne get out there and, uh, you know, save the day? Um, it, it, World War II for the United States um, is really the kind of, that's, that's the, um, I don't know what you want to call it, the measuring stick. But everyone in the United States likes to still talk about World War II. That was, that was the moment, the greatest generation, as people like to call them. Uh, world War II was where the United States saved the world. Now, I'm not going to say that that is, uh, that is false. Um, the United States during World War II absolutely did tremendous things. Um, and we'll talk about that. We will talk about that. Uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter is that unlike World War I, where the United States basically got involved in the final year of the war and, and kind of, you know, was the force that pushed everyone over the edge, uh, World War II is fascinating because the United States gets involved uh, fairly early on in the war. I mean, the war starts, and this is again something I will talk about, by, by, by most contemporary historians, um, you know, uh, readings. The war starts in 1939 with Germany invading Poland, causing uh, the United Kingdom and France to declare war on Germany, and then that's that. And then, you know, the war continues until uh, 1945 when Germany is finally uh, completely beaten into submission. And then later on uh, in the uh, Pacific Theater, later on in 1945, Japan is forced to surrender, but the United States gets involved at the very tail end of world, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of 1941 in the war uh, because of the Pearl Harbor attacks, okay? Um, I'm going to make this great assumption that if you're listening to me right now, you know what the Pearl Harbor attacks were, and if you don't, then you need to go and get on the bloody internet and look it up because... Come on, you know, you, you should know this by now. But be that as it may, the United States is involved in World War II uh, from, let's say, the beginning of 1942 until 1945, almost the end of 1945. And the United States is involved on two fronts, fighting both in Europe, North Africa, Italy, Normandy, France, Germany, and then also in the Pacific. So for the United States... World War II is really that war where it's kind of like the United States goes from being this power that it's like, okay, yeah, they have a lot of potential to, my goodness, what type of a can of whoop-you-know-what did we just open here? Uh, the United States single-handedly during the war uh, not only helps keep the Soviets going, which was a good thing considering that nine out of every ten dead German soldiers died on the Eastern Front. Uh, the Soviet Union fought the Germans to a standstill. But the United States tremendously helped them uh, with both food, spam. Uh, those of you that follow my Instagram account, at Antonius Optimus, will know that uh, spam basically saved the Soviet Union. Also, we shipped over... Uh, a ridiculous number of, of, of trucks to help them move supplies, food, munitions, the back and forth. 
At the same time, uh, we fought the Germans and Italians, and we also fought the Japanese. Uh, the Japanese basically by ourselves. So, you know, when people want to criticize the United States or to talk about World War II, I, I mean, and, and believe me, I'm, I'm more than happy to take in considerations of, of the United States going overboard. But World War II was not one of those situations. World War II is a situation where the United States basically just, you know, completely quashed any ideas that we were a second-rate power and, and basically demonstrated we were absolutely top of the line. Um, no other country in the world at the time could have done what we did. And I'm not saying that as a, in a braggadocious way. I'm saying that from a perspective of nobody else could have done this. We were the only ones that had the resources and the ability to do what we did. Um, and World, world War II is always also very interesting because uh, World War II has very clear-cut villains, okay? So, for example, you've got your Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, Hideki Tojo, you know? You've got these guys who are very easy to, I mean, no, nobody, you could argue with World War I, you could be like, well, the Germans had every right to, you know, try and expand their colonial empires, and blah, 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 blah. You really can't do that in World War II, and, and of course, one of the main reasons you can't uh, is because the actions, the activities of these powers, um, you know, the, the, the offensive powers, the Germany, and Japan, where that you had things like, for example, the Holocaust. Um, <laughs> you you can't really defend that unless, if you want to defend that, well, you're a sorry person, and um, you really ought not to be doing anything much. Uh, but you know, also with Japan, what happened in China, and people today talk about, oh, I don't understand why China is so interested. Well, go read up about the rape of Nanking, okay? Go read up about what the Japanese did to the Chinese during that war. Um, and then maybe you can come back and have a discussion about why the Chinese are still, uh, you know, salty about it. Uh, every right to be. Um, <clears throat> when I talk about World War I and World War II, when I teach, I'm, I'm a history teacher, uh, as many of you know by nature, I talk about the fact that World War I and World War II were really, if you can imagine a play, they are acts one and two of the same play. There is no uh, real disconnect. Uh, it's basically Germany trying to assert her influence in Europe and around the world. And World War I, uh, Germany almost does it, you know, a dozen miles away from Paris. Uh, beat the Russians, by the way, uh, but couldn't, couldn't close the deal. And that's why World War II, Germany, again, it's the same thing. Germany is still trying to become the dominant power in Europe and to expand her influence all over. So it, it's, it's not that different. Germany, up until that point, had always sought what we call the Lebensraum, the living space in the East, okay? Um, and again, we're, we're not justifying this. We're just saying that this is what happened. 
So Germany has been trying to do this. And, you know, again, um, in the Franco-Prussian War, uh, 80, 70, 71, they actually did beat France. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they forced a couple of sessions from France. But it wasn't enough. For Germany to become this massive power, they needed more. Now, I'm going to argue, and, and this is, by the way, not me. This is something uh, that I learned when I was uh, in college. And again, why it's a great thing to go to school and learn. The thing that made the difference uh, in Europe and in the world was basically the advent of the railroad. Now, why? Why was this so important? Here's why. The railroad made it possible for you to move uh, items, to move men, material, great distances quickly. Before the advent of the railroad, uh, basically the ideal size of a state would have been that of, of something like France, uh, the United States, Russia, a little big. In order to get stuff from one point to another, it would take you days, weeks, months to get them. But once the railroads come about, now everything's different. Now I can ship goods over the course of a thousand miles, uh, not in a matter of weeks and months, in a matter of days. And that's what makes the difference. So now the bigger the land that you own, the better. So now places the size of France, the size of Prussia, are no longer really ideal. Now the United States, rather than just being this gigantic landmass where it's like, oh, fantastic, you want to move something from California to New Jersey, well, have fun. It'll either take months and months and months to get it across by land, or you can, of course, you can go by ship. In which case, it'll take you a little shorter, but it'll still be a very long trip. Now, with railroads, I can get that stuff wherever I want. <clears throat> and when I teach the Civil War, the American Civil War, uh, in school, I talk about probably one of the biggest assets. And again, it's, it's really funny. No one talks about this. Everyone talks about what were the advantages the Union had. Well, they had more men, they had more material, they had more this, more that. Yes, you're right, absolutely right on all those counts. But no one really ever talks about the fact that the North had a ridiculously greater amount of railroads. And that allowed them to move men and material over vast distances. I mean, because that's what you're trying to do, isn't it? I mean, the whole idea is that, listen, yeah, that's great. You know, you outnumber us right here. All right, you've got 25,000 men, we have uh, 18,000. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put men onto a railroad train and ship them 200 miles to the east. And now all of a sudden, we've got you outnumbered 20,000 to 10,000. And if you think about that you're going to be getting men over there, well, good luck. You don't have the ability to do it. You don't have the railroads to do it. So railroads make the difference. And what you see in the aftermath of World War I is still this desire for Germany to expand. And you know, we could talk about the Treaty of Versailles. Um, you know, the, the Treaty of Versailles, I think that the, the major issue with that 
if you look back, if if you look historically at Europe, you know, after Napoleon, there was this idea of, okay, listen, you know, the French done screwed up, but France is a major part of Europe. So we're going to welcome them back in. We're just going to be like, All right, listen, you, you guys, you can't go out, you know, conquering and killing people anymore. And the French were like, all right, fine, good, you know, we'll, we'll chill out, we'll be good. And for almost 100 years, that stayed its way. Now, after World War One, the French under Clemenceau, David Lloyd George, they determined to punish the Germans. And this was bad. Their idea was we're going to crush them. They'll never be able to rise up again. Ha 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 ha. Um, except that, it, it, you know, what you did was you simply made the Germans really unhappy. Now, the Treaty of Versailles wasn't as crippling as today it's, it's pointed out to be. I mean, it basically, it, it did hurt the Germans tremendously from the perspective of, uh, you know, their, their ability to maintain a military that's what everyone was afraid of. But over time, and especially once the Great Depression hit uh, and, and the, the effects of it, uh, the Germans were able to pay back uh, all of their debt for pennies on the dollar because of the depreciation of their, their you know, the, the Deutsche Mark. So what you had was you had a Germany that was humbled, territory taken away, but still with this idea of we want our living space. And that's why you ended up having, you know, a guy like Hitler coming to power. <clears throat> now, the funny thing about Hitler, and I, I compare this a lot of the times to how in the United States right now, um, the current president, Donald J. Trump, is being treated. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not saying Hitler and Trump on the same level. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that many people in Germany felt, especially the industrialized elites, felt that, you know, uh, we can control this guy. We'll get him in charge. He'll do what we want, okay? He'll acquire new territories for us, for our economy, you know, but we'll, tell, we'll be able to tell him what to do. And they couldn't. Once Hitler got in charge, it was, you're not telling him anything. He's telling you what to do. And then what happened with, with Trump, I would say the same thing. Many Republicans felt, well, he'll get into power and then we'll be able to, you know, tell him what to do. No, in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, Donald Trump is telling the Republicans what to do. He's driving their agenda. They're not driving him. It, it, it is interesting to see how, you know, these powers, the powers that be decide, well, we can control this. No, it's, it is a Frankenstein's monster in a sense. You don't get to, and that's what Hitler was. Hitler was a Frankenstein's monster. They thought they could control him. They thought they could keep things under control with him. They couldn't. He was never going to be able to be under control. And he, he showed very early on in the relationship with the Junkers and with, uh, you know, all the other uh, industrialized people in Germany uh, that he was actually the one in charge and he was calling the shots. So, you had that. And, you know, like I said before, the fascinating thing about uh, World War II is that you kind of got, 
You've also got... Hitler wrote a book, Mein Kampf, My, My Struggle. Okay. He wrote it when he was in prison after trying to overthrow the state. Which kind of should have been your first warning sign that maybe this guy wasn't on the up and up. But hey, you know, the right wing in Germany were like, oh, they weren't upset that he tried to overthrow the state. They were upset that he didn't do it. But Hitler wrote My Mein Kampf, My Struggle, in which he basically said, listen, here's what, here's the bottom line. I'll condense this book for you guys. Uh, you don't have to read it. I, I think it's in the public domain now. Um, it's horribly boring, okay? Uh, and it's just basically Hitler ranting on and on and on. I'm going to save you the trouble. Here's what he says, basically. The Jews are responsible for all bad things. Germany should be the dominant power in the world. And in order to do that, what we've got to do is the following. Uh, we're going to attack the countries to the east of us and conquer them and create living space, and we're going to put German colonists there, uh, and that's pretty much going to be that. And then everyone later on was like, oh my God, what, what, what do you mean Hitler's threatening to invade Poland and Russia and stuff? Uh-huh. Who would have saw this coming? Well, everyone that read the freaking book would have seen it coming, okay? Easily seen it coming. Hitler said, this is what I'm going to do, and then he went out and did it, Okay. He went out and did it. Now, I mean, again, not so much of a, you know, a, a good shot in Russia, but that's for another time. And I'll discuss Russia at another point and talk about how they, you know, the, the, the issues with Germany in Russia in 1941-42 and into 43. After that, it kind of just turns into a one-sided affair. But um, it could have been very different. Could have been very, very different. But yeah, so anyone would have noticed that. But by the 1930s, with the Great Depression, everyone's kind of doing their own thing. They're like, oh, whatever, Germany's doing whatever. Hey, did you hear that uh, you know, Germany is, uh, is training pilots again? What do you mean they're training pilots? Yeah, they're training pilots, uh, you know, to become, you know, actual fighter pilots and bombers. Like, well, you know, I mean, whatever. It's not like they're going to do anything with this. Well, I don't know. They're, uh, <laughs> They're, they're also running these things with tanks. Yeah, the training with tanks. Oh, what are they going to do with tanks? You know, Germans. Yeah, they only had, I think, seven or eight of them during the First World War. Fun fact, that really is about the number that they had. Uh, Mephisto, which is one of the only ones remaining. Uh, there, there was one in Australia. I don't know that we know where it is now, which is a shame. If you're from Australia, um, do me a favor. Uh, go look up. There was a German tank that was uh, brought, uh, there were the A7s was the model number. Uh, they actually named each of them because there were very few. If you're from Australia, do me a favor, go find out what happened. This tank was taken to Australia's war booty. It was dragged by a tractor, which basically destroyed a lot of the bottom of it. And then it was kept outside where it got graffitied and where... It was exposed to the elements. And the last that I read about it, which was maybe six months ago, they had brought it in um, to do some reconstruction on it. I'm curious uh, what happened to it, what's going on with it. it it's not for show anymore in the uh, Australian uh, the War Museum. Find out for me and email me, DM me, do something. Get in touch with me. Let me know what's going on with that. Um, 
in other places, you know, there, there are only a couple of them that survived, like I said. Um, <clears throat> but the Germans in World War II, with their tanks, much, much, much more savvy. Okay? The tanks in World War II with, with Germany, uh, they came up with different ideas on how to use them. Instead of just using them what we call penny packet style, which would be like, all right, listen, we need a tank here to crush some barbed wire. The Germans uh, had an idea, and that idea became known in the West as Blitzkrieg. Now, uh, fun fact, the Germans never talked about Blitzkrieg. The German, you know, offensive strategy was always based around the idea that you would, it was a war of movement, okay? And, and that it was, it was based on this idea of penetrating enemy lines, of going forward, of disrupting things. The, World War I, towards the end of the war, um, you know, they had the Hüter, um, these, these divisions that basically were like, okay, we're going to penetrate enemy lines. We're not going to stop. We're just going to keep going. And then later on, the other infantry, these elite forces will penetrate them. Other infantry will come up behind them. Now, <clears throat> that works well, and it did work well with infantry. It works even better when you've got the ability to have things like tanks, which are fast-moving, that can really penetrate enemy lines. And then the Germans had, uh, which worked out very well in the beginning of the war, uh, the Ju-87, the Stuka dive bombers. And these were basically like, you know, mobile artillery. Uh, they could drop bombs wherever you wanted with tremendous precision. And so the Germans basically came up with, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to punch through the enemy lines. And then we're going to follow up with, you know, soldiers. Uh, if we run into any problems, avoid the problems. Just have the dive bombers come in there and blast any kind of an enemy stronghold. It worked ridiculously well. Uh, it, it worked really well in Poland. It worked really well in France. Uh, but again, and this is where we're trying to bring the reality of things. In, in, in Poland, after the initial you know, shock and awe, the Poles really kind of dug in and were fighting the Germans on almost equal footing. What killed them more than the Germans was the fact that the Soviets backstabbed them and invaded from the east. And that, that completely collapsed all Polish defenses. You could make an argument that the Poles, had the Soviets not invaded, the Poles could have possibly held out long enough to make things very difficult for Germany. They were setting up defensive lines. They were launching counterattacks. Uh, yes, the Germans definitely had an advantage uh, in men and materiel, but the Poles were not going down. This was not, I know it was three weeks, but it was not a gimme. It was not as one-sided as you might think. Uh, with France, much the same way. All right, first three weeks, all Germany. The second three weeks, the French actually were inflicting more casualties on the Germans, but, and, and we'll get into this at another point, by that point, French defeatism had kind of run through the entire military. Um, they, they didn't have the will to carry on this long systemic campaign, and they were worried that the Germans were going to 
uh, bomb Paris and and destroy it. Um, uh, probably a legitimate concern. I don't doubt that the Germans would have uh, for one second. Uh, but also the British by that point uh, had made the decision to flee the continent. Uh, they had decided that they were going to, um, you know, save what limited forces they have, and that's what led to Dunkirk. So World War II, very, very interesting beginning of things. And what I wanted to leave you guys with here today, I wanted to leave you with the following. Yes, there were there were the, the bad guys, okay? But World War II was very much World War I, um, just another attempt by Germany to do it. And with some better weapons. But I will say this. <clears throat> Don't think that, I mean, you know, the current way that people teach World War II is that, well, the Germans overran everyone up until, you know, 1943 and then everything, you know, fell back on them. Um, no, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that in every case, I think that the Poles, first of all, fought back splendidly against the Germans. The French did as well, the French and British. The Germans basically got the advantage of a couple of things. Number one, uh, they they caught the Poles unaware. The Poles tried to defend the entire frontier, were unable to do that. Second, the Russians invaded from the east, backstabbed them. There was that. With the French, you know, they launched that initial attack through the Ardennes. Uh, Manstein's plan, absolutely brilliant plan. Uh, they caught the French and British armies, and the Belgian armies as well, uh, up on the north. But they couldn't cripple them I- until it was, you know, much later on. Um, and and if, you had, if they had listened to Hitler, they wouldn't have been able to cripple them at all. Uh, Hitler wanted the forces to stop attacking after the, the first and second week. And basically the German commanders were like, yeah, no problem. No, we're to- we're stopping. It just takes a while to get in touch with those, you know, tank forces, the Panzer forces that are sprinting out into France here. No, but we'll total we'll totally get them to slow down. Yeah, any 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 minute now. And of course they did. So <clears throat> that's where we're at with World War Two so far. Um, in my next episode. I would love to talk about, and well, there are a couple of things I want to do in future episodes. Um, I think the World War II episode is going to be more than three. I don't know. We'll have to wait. We'll have to see how long it is. But it, it's going to be good, I'm telling you. I'm going to be talking about what happened in the early stages of World War II. I'm going to be talking about things more in depth and talking about how Europe reacted uh, to Germany, to Germany's offensives. Uh, what they did, and then eventually how Germany ends up getting everything wrong. Um, you know, they, they, they got it right from a point, but as I always like to discuss uh, with people about World War II, with Germany, their intelligence services were absolutely horrendous, especially on the Eastern Front. I mean, Jesus, they just were like, oh, no, we expect to see about 150 divisions. And it's like 150 divisions. Uh, uh, you know, by 1943, the Soviets were fielding, you know, five and 600 divisions. I mean, how do you get to that? You know, that's like saying, 
can this guy, uh, you know, uh, play good basketball? No, he's all right. You know, he's he's not a bad player. And then LeBron James shows up, okay? I mean, you done goofed, okay? And, and that's what we're going to talk about. In any case, like I said uh, before, if you are from Australia, I want to know what happened at A7 Tank, okay? You had it down there. It's somewhere. Let me know about it, please. I would love to. Uh, I'm going to look up the one that's, uh, I think there's one in the United States. I'm going to have to double check on that one. But I will let you guys know about that in the next podcast. In any case, if you have questions, comments, things you want to say, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Let me know what's going on. Let me know what else you want to hear. I got a couple episodes of this, and then after that, um, I want to do an episode on poetry. Um, I've I've wanted to for a while. Um, I have a great book, Men Who March Away. Poems of the First World War, an anthology, and it is tremendous. I mean, uh, I, I, I think there is such a big difference between the way that, you know, war is taught in the United States versus Europe. In Europe, World War I is the big war, and, and in the United States, it's World War II. And of course, we have Vietnam, which is the other major issue in the United States, so we're still dealing with that, and, and will be for many, many decades to come. But anyway, if you have anything to say... Let me know about it. Otherwise, I hope everyone is doing well. Please be smart, be safe, social distance, wear masks. Um, let, let's beat this stupid virus down so that we can get back to living life the way that we want to. Um, hopefully that will be sooner rather than later. In any case, enjoy. And until I talk to you again, bye-bye.